Please join me in prayer. Wonderful Father in heaven, here we are again as you see the sisters and the brothers coming together in the name of Jesus, ready to receive your word, to gather at your table, to meet you. Come, we pray, O God in heaven, and meet with us as we meet with one another. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Grace to you and peace from God, our wonderful Father, and the Lord, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. The great J.B. Phillips said one time that working your way through the Holy Scripture as we attempt to do Sunday by Sunday here at Restoration is a bit like wiring your house, you know, adding another outlet or maybe repairing a switch with the current still on. Every now and then, as careful as you care to be, you're going to get bit. That's happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you, too. Father Rick is away at men's retreat, but we're not going to wait. We're going to go ahead and return once again, as we have these last few Sundays, to the book of Philippians. Philippians 3, our text for this morning, as it turns out, is a wonderful opportunity for accidental electrocution. It's a passage that's just like brimming with bare wires, high voltage, just hanging there, ready to touch you. And if you should happen to lay hold of one of these things over the next few minutes, Lord willing, you won't, it won't want to let you go. Nowhere in all of his letters, one commentator said, does St. Paul make so clear and with such feeling how vitally important the person of Christ is to him. Another commentator said that one of the most, this is one of the most remarkable personal confessions which all of antiquity has bequeathed to us all through the years. Here we have come, you might say, to the real heart of the matter for St. Paul. It's like touching the vagus nerve, if you know what that thing is. It's like the longest cranial nerve that passes through your body and connects the base of your brain to the base of your abdomen and, it, and, and it connects almost all of our important bodily functions, the vagus nerve. That's what we have in this passage. It's like the electrical pathway that runs through the core of St. Paul's being and makes him who he is and ties him together somehow or another. The text begins with a, a rapid-fire and fevered kind of list of all the creative ways we use, we've invented through the years, to try to make ourselves like right with God. You'll recognize some of these things. All the, fe all the fevered ways we try to fill the hole in our hearts, to come to peace somehow with a generally crummy human condition, to deal with our sin. First and foremost, St. Paul says, we try to be good. You've been there, I think. Paul was very good at being good. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, St. Paul said in verse 4, well, I've got more. Paul knew the rules, and he followed them just, to the, to, just precisely. He was circumcised at the right time. He was a Pharisee. He was a zealot. Verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. This guy was good. So we're pretty good at being good, too. It's a, it kind of comes with the territory. 
We say our prayers, we go to church, we kneel down, we try not to get angry too very often anyway, or at least not in public. We know the rules and we follow them as best we can. Secondly, uh, Paul, uh, it, it, beyond the rules, Paul looks to his like pedigree. The fevered list goes on this way. Paul will have us know that his uh, pedigree, thank you very much, was incomparable. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, which is to say the fellow was a purebred. He was born to the tribe of Benjamin as well, like the favored tribe, the one that always went ahead in battle, the one that's whose name meant beloved of the Lord. This is like saying we're Americans born of Americans. And not only that, we're sensible Midwesterners, yes? And not only that, but we're Americans, sensible Midwesterners who belong to the tribe of Anglican. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. And then finally, Paul looks to his accomplishments. He wants to fill the hole at the bottom of his heart. He wants to get right with God and discover peace. He wants to deal with his sin and his failures by accomplishment. Paul had the proper training he wants us to know. Paul came from the proper schools, he'll have us remember. He accumulated a very impressive resume with very impressive references like many of us. Paul was like a superstar at something that we have since come to call the rat race. And then, as sometimes happens in biographies like these, the whole project comes crashing down. Paul finds that all the lovely rules that have animated him his whole life long, all the impressive pedigrees that he is uh, you know, happy to uh, repeat, all the accomplishments that he's packed into his life are not yet lovely or powerful or good enough. You can never be Hebrew enough, you see, if being Hebrew is going to be your strategy for life. You can never achieve enough if achievement is going to be what turns your crank. You can never be pure enough if purity is what you want, uh, you want to get you into heaven. And the more you try, it seems that the worse it gets. I do not understand my own actions, Paul confesses elsewhere. I try to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. The whole entire fevered project has left him feeling, he says in Romans, wretched. All the rules, all the pedigree, all the accomplishments, all those things that have animated him his whole spiritual life long don't work. I've been there myself personally. Maybe some of you have too. It's an experience that is common to the human condition in every culture, every culture around the world. There's two ways forward from that point, <clears throat> and they both involve giving up. You can give up the effort altogether, as many have. Uh, you uh, may know that the fastest growing religious segment of America today is something that you might call the nuns. That is, people who check, check none on their, on their Gallup polls when asked about religious preference. It's uh, grown threefold in the last 20 years, and it currently is about 30% of the population. You can just give the whole thing up and go away. Or on the other hand, 
you can give up the effort to work and sweat and earn your way to peace and wholeness and forgiveness and redemption and let God accomplish what you cannot. Paul, for his part, is going to throw the whole thing out. All the achievements, I mean, it's breathtaking. I've got, I mean, you've, you, have a, you have a few achievements. Imagine throwing the whole business out. Paul throws the whole thing out, the achievements and the rules, the lovely Hebrew heritage, and now he counts them as rubbish in verse 8. And Paul turns to Jesus. In verses 8 and 9, he describes the, describes the thing. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. <clears throat> so let me permit me to, to share with you uh, an illustration <clears throat> that comes from the domain of backyard gardening. I heard it first from a favorite bishop in the Lutheran Church of Sweden some years ago. You can say a lot of things about the Swedish people, but one thing maybe uh, you shouldn't forget is that the Swedish people really know their backyard gardening. The project of building a Christian life peace in your heart, hope for heaven, holiness, forgiveness, redemption, something, all those things. The project of building a Christian life is something like building a backyard garden, the bishop says. In Sweden, anyway, it goes like this. You go to the shed and take out your spade. That's what they call a shovel in Sweden. And you get, go, to the, go to a plot of land and begin to turn over some sod, yes? Then you get out your rake and you whack at the earth and you drag out some rocks. Maybe you add some compost, maybe a fence around the perimeter to keep out, uh, to keep out uh, unwanted intruders. You want the thing to be fertile one day. So you work it and whack it. I've watched my wife do this. You whack, whack it and you rake the thing into submission. At this stage in Sweden, anyway, you're feeling kind of hopeful about it. It's pretty soon you're going to see some progress. You begin even now to start to think of harvest one day. And all of this is something like building a Christian life, the bishop says. You open your heart a little bit, open your life. It's like turning over a little sod. You get out your tools. You try to remember how to pray. Take out your Bible and read it from time to time before breakfast. You go to church, you work away. It is true that you discover a rock or two along the way from time to time. That is true. An occasional sin, maybe a few minor imperfections. But they're pretty easy to deal with at this early stage. You can drag them out, put them in a bucket, and throw them away. It's hopeful work. Maybe you want to add some compost like building a few uh, healthy habits into your life. It's hopeful work as you begin. There's lots of imperfections that you can drag out and throw away in a single day. But uh, the deeper that you go and the more that you work at the project, the more complicated 
the garden of your life becomes. What is easily removed at the surface becomes more difficult. The stones become like boulders beneath the surface. And you begin to find them everywhere. I mean, you can give up that extra latte that you didn't really need anyway in a single day and contribute what you save to the, to the church or to some charity. You can find that stone kind of at the surface. But try tangling for a while with pride, let's say. Or try, uh, try rooting out your, your natural self-centeredness, let's say. Or maybe some favorite prejudice. Or maybe an especially useful grudge that you've carried for a while and still pull out from time to time when it seems useful. You can whack at things like that all day long and they will not easily budge. Eventually the bishop goes on, if you keep at it and dig for a while, you find yourself standing on a granite shelf at the base of all things, going in every direction, and it is like impenetrable. You can't budge it. You can't crack it. And then it dawns on you, good God, there's never going to be a garden here. Okay, the Swedish people can be a bit dour at times, it is true. <laughs> at this point, the bishop continues, you face a decision. You can give the whole thing up. Give up all hope. Or you can place your hope in Christ. The bishop calls it the crisis of faith. <laughs> That's what happened to St. Paul. Faith is the admission that my righteousness is not yet righteousness enough. Faith gives up trying harder and being better and squirming your way into heaven. We can't manufacture God's favor. We can't earn it somehow or another. Faith, uh, faith accepts the righteousness of God, free and unmerited, depending upon nothing but God's own overwhelming love. Faith sees a cross, you see, planted there right on the granite shelf at the base of all things, the impenetrable shelf. Faith sees a cross there and sees blood shed on the granite and sees that God has accomplished the things that you cannot. Faith is to know Christ, St. Paul says in verse 8. It's to gain Christ, he says in that verse. Faith is to be found in Christ, he says in verse 9. Faith is like saying yes to Christ, saying yes to the fact of Christ's redemption, saying yes to Christ. Christ says, I have forgiven you. And faith says, yes, that'll do. Faith says, I was sent for your, he says, I was sent for your redemption. I've come to love you, not condemn you. Faith says, yes. He says, I am the loving heart of the Father. I am, in fact, the peace that your heart has always wanted. And faith says, yes, that'll be enough for me. This is what Paul means by the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. It comes through saying yes to Jesus and all that he's done for you and wants to do in you. It says yes to Jesus. But now in conclusion, Speaking once again of the vagus nerve, it is, as I mentioned, the longest cranial nerve in the body. 
winding its way from the base of your head to the base of your stomach, connects most every major system in your body, really. And uh, it's something like the electrical currents, I think, that are running through this passage today. These are the things that connect Paul's entire worldview and all of his theology. This is like the vagus nerve. It's become possible in recent years, I, I've, I've learned, to treat certain medical conditions by electronic stimulation of the vagus nerve, believe it or not. Everything from chronic anxiety to heart arrhythmias to indigestion, you can treat that way. You can implant a, a device, something like a pacemaker apparently, to stimulate that thing and make you, and, and, and make you, make more, make you healthy. In the few verses that remain in our passage, the second paragraph of this little section, if you'll permit a, like a sudden change in metaphor, Paul is implanting a spiritual vagus nerve stimulator, you might say, to stimulate his faith relationship with Jesus and to keep it on the proper footing. Paul reminds himself to forget what lies behind, verse 13. That is, the failures and the sin that would otherwise overwhelm him. He reminds himself to forget what lies behind, as well as the accomplishments that might give him false hope. My hope does not lie here, he tells himself. And then Paul tells himself to lean into what lies ahead, which is to say, to know Christ every day better every day more fully, all that he has done for us, all that he wants to be in us and for us, to know Christ, to press ahead. Verse 13, my hope is in Christ, he will repeat to himself. I mean, uh, if you think, take nothing else from the sermon, maybe take this idea. You could, uh, you, could, you could add verses like these to your morning Alexa routine, yes? And you could build yourself a spiritual vagus, vagus nerve stimulator. Have your smart speaker read verses like these to you every morning instead of the weather report. Or maybe add them to your calendar as a repeating event so that every few days, maybe every Monday and Friday, these verses will come up on your calendar. Your sin is covered in Jesus. Your incompleteness is made whole in his completeness. You are alive by grace through faith, and it doesn't depend on you, but on Jesus. The righteousness of the law cannot effect such confidence of mind, Martin Luther said one time. But I'll tell you what does, he said. It is the gift of God's righteousness for Christ's sake through faith. That one is a live wire. You get a hold of that thing and it's not going to let you go. Amen.